very tempted to tell you about the lady that I've just talked to, not so much about her, but about her father. And um, I've written an article about her father. His name is Terry Ackrow uh, at Clan in Scotland, where I've preached uh, uh, two or three years. Uh, he was uh, well-known there, although he's from York. He's now in heaven. And I wrote an article about him. I haven't published it because I don't think the world is ready for it. I called the article, The Most Supernatural Man I've Ever Met. If I were to tell you things, you would probably get up and leave and think that I'd lost my head. But the, the anointing on her dad, he was a layman. He worked, uh, he was, a, a, I think, a manager in, in selling Kit Kats, wasn't it? Uh, uh, where are you, Vicky? Oh, the rapture came. She's going to heaven. <laughs> you know, I think it's good that she's not here because it might embarrass her. But he had a gift that oil would come out on his fingers. When I first told Louise about it, she was suspicious. She thought that he had it up his sleeve and... <laughs> And then one day she just watched, and she said as he prayed, she'd see the oil ooze out from his fingernails, and it had the aroma of roses, and you could smell it across the room. And uh, uh, it was so timely, the way he, the oil it would appear almost like the Urim and Thummim in the Old Testament, whether God said yes or no. And uh, it would work like that, and when we'd I'd ask him a question, could you pray about this? Pray about our daughter, Melissa. And he called me one day with a word where the oil came on him and said, here's the scripture for Melissa. And uh, he had two people that he prayed for, mainly. One was Mike Pilavachi and me. And I was so honored. And then one day, his wife phoned and said that he died. And I, I never quite got over it. Anyway... Uh, Vicky, his daughter, was talking about your dad. Glad you weren't here because it might have embarrassed you. But uh, that's why I wanted to spend time with her. I know several of you would like uh, time, and I want to give it all I can. Uh, anyway, well, now let's continue with this theme of the anointing. Uh, forgive me for referring to Westminster Chapel, but. Uh, we had two prayer covenants over the uh, 25 years I was there. And the second one, uh, we got everybody in the chapel who would sign up, and I think about 300 did, to pray every day for certain petitions. And the main one, the last one on the list was, we pray for the manifestation of God's glory in our midst, along with an ever-increasing openness in us to the way God chooses to show up. And the reason I worded it that way is because I know how in church history the way God would show up uh, can be very strange and uh, really challenging to our dignity and to our sophistication. And uh, uh, Westminster Chapel was a very, very traditional church, but they all wanted the glory of God. They did. And so I knew that I was right to pray for the manifestation of God's glory. 
That was fine. But I added, along with an ever-increasing openness in us to the way God chooses to manifest his glory, so that we would be prepared for things that might uh, bring us out of our comfort zone. And uh, on the very week that uh, I had these little cards printed up uh, by a printer to give out on the Sunday, uh, on that very week, uh, in that very week, uh, uh, Lyndon Bowring, uh, my close friend who's chairman of CARE, and Charlie Colchester, who was at that time church warden, one of them, at Holy Trinity Brompton, and I were in a Chinese restaurant uh, in Soho. And while we're waiting for our food, uh, Charlie Colchester spoke up and said, have you guys heard about this Toronto thing? No, what do you mean? Well, he said, at, at Holy Trinity, uh, they pray for people and they fall to the floor and they start laughing. And he said, uh, last uh, Sunday night, uh, uh, my wife and I left at 11 o'clock with 50 bodies on the floor and they were laughing. What do you all think of that? Well, I looked at Linda and he looked at me. If you put me under a lie detector, I would have said that's not of God. You see, I didn't want it to be of God. I find that offensive. And the main thing, if it really was of God, it would have come to Westminster Chapel first. <laughs> I didn't thought it would be, first of all, in an Anglican church. I mean, we know the Church of England is apostate. And uh, at Holy Trinity, there's... Sloan Square accents and Etonians, and God would not do that. And I was at ease. It's not of God. And so that Sunday, when I introduced the prayer covenant cards, everybody take one, sign it, I mentioned this. And I said, what's going on? That's not it. Caution people. And then a few weeks later, having spent some time with Ken Costa, the other church warden of Holy Trinity Brompton, before our lunch was over, my countenance changed, and I thought, oh no, I think this is of God, and I'm on the wrong side. And I realized in Jonathan Edwards' day, there were evangelicals against it. In the Welsh Revival, there were evangelicals against it. And there's a tradition of anti. And here I am in that. And I don't like this. And I thought, what am I going to do? I do not want to be against something. And I think this is of God. And I don't like it. But I think it is. And I remember saying to the deacons on that Friday night, I said, I think I've been wrong. And I'm sorry. And to their credit, every one of them said, go for it. We're with you. And that morning, I climbed down publicly and said, What's going on at Holy Trinity Brompton? It's the work of the Holy Spirit, and I encourage anybody to go there. Get all you can. And some did. Some didn't come back. Some did come back. It was all right. And uh, that sort of thing did not come to Westminster Chapel for years later. We were the last, I think, uh, to accept it. 
But they were lovely days. We had the anointing of oil. We saw people healed. Uh, the great sense of God never saw what I would call revival. Uh, and I look back on those days. I think I can say with integrity, we had a good ministry. It wasn't great. It was good. And good was good enough. And they were lovely days. But I've never been sorry that I invited Arthur Blessed. I've never been sorry that I endorsed what was then called by the Sunday Telegraph, the Toronto Blessing. You see, the anointing takes us outside our comfort zone. And I might wish that revival would come in a neat and tidy package. And sovereign vessels always seem to put people off. But I would rather be uh, today's man and tomorrow's man and be stigmatized and know that I can hear the Holy Spirit speak than to be yesterday's man and even be famous and, and popular and soaring to the top. I don't want that. And um, I think of something that's been going on in Britain in recent days. People ask me, what do you see when you go around the world? And the truth is, not a lot. And in more recent days, a very, very good friend of mine, and he used to see me as a sort of mentor, I don't think he would now, has come out to now uh, espousing homosexual marriage. And, 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 uh, and this man is well-loved and liked and popular. But this is a recipe to become yesterday's man. I don't care how famous and respected a person is, when the anointing lifts, you're yesterday's man. And we must get to the place that we don't care about popularity or having people following us or admiring us. Well, here comes Samuel to the house of Jesse. And Jesse's scared to death when he sees Samuel. But what he doesn't know is that Samuel's scared to death. Samuel's afraid he's going to get caught. Jesse thinks he's done something wrong, that Samuel would come. He says, it's nothing to worry about. And uh, I've come to find the next king. Well, Jesse brings Eliab out. And, uh, and as soon as Samuel saw Eliab, he said, ah, here is the Lord's anointed. And Jesse, of course, is thrilled to bits because Eliab is the firstborn. And you can understand how Samuel could make the mistake. It's Eliab, firstborn. At that point, God says, Whoa! Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And now we see something in Samuel that I admire. He said, Jesse, I made a mistake. Got it wrong. It's not Eliab. This is a wonderful thing. So many people, if they make a pronouncement, say, I'm sticking to my guns. Or you take prophetic people. They give a word. They say, that's it. 
won't admit that maybe they got it wrong. And here's the great Samuel. This is, this is the thing that shows he's got integrity. He just said, I said it was a lie. I'm wrong. And there are those who, because of their pride, uh, won't climb down. And you've got to make a choice. Do you want people to admire you because you're sticking to your guns, or are you willing to look stupid to say, I made a mistake, in order to keep the anointing? Uh, you take an author who writes books. You would be amazed at people I know who take a theological line because they wrote it in a book. They happen to have changed. But they won't admit it because they got it in the book and they want to stick by it. I want to say, well, what if you've changed? Just say you got it wrong. There are people who just can't do that. You make a decision how important is the anointing. And if you want the anointing, you will climb down, admit you've made a mistake. And this is what will bring unity to a church. Well, so, they bring in Shammah. Well, at first they bring in Abinadab. He's the first one. And Samuel says, huh, I don't think it's that one either. Okay. Jesse calls for Shammah. He comes by. Samuel said, I don't think it's that one. And Jesse says, don't worry, we got a bunch of them. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And now Samuel thinks, I think I've lost my prophetic gift. He's not here. Are these all your sons? Well, says Jesse, we've got one more, but you don't want him. He's tending the sheep. He's just a kid. Would you get him, please? Do you mind? Okay. And they go get David, who has not the faintest idea that Samuel's even there. Here's the interesting thing. You would have thought Jesse would bring in David just to meet the great Samuel. Jesse so underestimates David, that David doesn't even know that Samuel's coming to the home for dinner. And maybe you know what it is to be that rejected child or underestimated by your dad or your mother. Uh, you know what it is that your parents have said, you'll never amount to anything. Or you never quite come up to standard. And here Jesse wasn't even going to bring David in. And maybe you feel that way. But you see, God knows your name. He knows where you are. And he knew where David was. And he came in. And it took Samuel to recognize David. And he anointed him with oil. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And so, when... You are today's man. You've got to be willing to go where the anointing is. And you may not like where the anointing is. I didn't like it that Westminster Chapel wasn't the first to have this. It went to the last place I would have thought. Church of England, Holy Trinity, Brompton. How dare God do that? <laughs> By the way, 
HTB became like a sister church to us. Sandy Miller, we prayed for him publicly. Nikki Gumbel, now there, friend of mine. Uh, but as Jonathan Edwards put it, the task of every generation is to discover in which direction the sovereign Redeemer is moving, then move in that direction. In order to know in which direction the sovereign Redeemer is moving, you must be able to hear God's voice. You hear his voice and to know what's happening. And I can't imagine anything worse than not hearing God's voice. You see, the irony of church history is those who prepared most for tomorrow's church were the most remembered. And Samuel is the one that was looking out for tomorrow's man. And he's the one that's got books named after him. But Samuel was willing to be a nobody and do the most dangerous thing in the world. In order to retain the anointing, you've got to be willing not to get the credit you see, the world is yet to see what God will do with one person who's willing not to get the credit for it. And there's no limit to how far a person can go as long as he doesn't care who gets the credit. And so you've got to be willing to be between the times and live in a place where you can hear God speak even though you haven't been recognized yet. It comes down to this, getting to know God so well that you don't miss what he's in. I can think of nothing worse than for God to be at work right under my nose and I miss it, all because it doesn't cohere with my plans, what I think it will be like. I love going to Wales to preach. I never had a bad meeting in Wales. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having a word of knowledge. <laughs> you, my child, are from Wales. <laughs> Boy, don't say I don't have a prophetic gift. <laughs> but there's one little problem you have over there, my dear. <laughs> they all think if revival comes, they'll know it. But you're not listening to me. It may not happen like that again. You see, that's the thing. What God did in the 16th century turned the world upside down, but he showed up in the 18th century and it bore no resemblance of what happened in the 16th century. And there are those who think if something is of God, they'll be the ones to know it. It always takes people by surprise and God does what is unprecedented. You say, what's the scriptural basis for that? I'll tell you. Hebrews 11. Not a single person in Hebrews 11 got to do what had happened before. Noah grows up hearing of the legendary Enoch. We read Enoch walked with God. We read Noah walked with God. But Noah the whole time is thinking, any day now I'm going to be taken to heaven. And then he reaches past the age of when Enoch was taken to glory. And Noah wonders, what am I doing wrong? And God says, build an ark. What? An ark? Well, that's never been done before, quite. 
Where's that in the Bible? Build an ark. Hasn't been done before or since. Abraham hears about Noah. He's thinking, well, when do I start building the ark? Abraham, he's told to go out not knowing where he's going. And all of them in Hebrews 11 had to do what hadn't been done. And so when I hear of strange things, like oil, like gold dust, gold teeth. I had to go to the dentist yesterday because this tooth came out. They had to get me an appointment at 3.30 yesterday. And the day before, I'd been in Toronto, and that's where they have gold teeth. I think, Lord, why didn't you just take care of it then? Uh, but I was in Toronto, and it wasn't on this trip, but the time before, when a little girl, six years old, little Mexican girl, was sitting about six chairs from me and started screaming. And they all went to her, what is? She said, ah, ah. And they got a torch and they flashed it and they had me look. I saw the most beautiful gold teeth, symmetrical perfectly. Little Mexican girl, you think, why that? I'll tell you why that. It's God's way of offending sophisticated people. He's looking for that which will just rub people the wrong way and say, that can't be God. And God said, well, that's a good reason to do it. And that's why we must be aware of the way he chooses to work. And so it means going outside your comfort zone. And it's painful to be today's man or woman, but perhaps even more painful to be tomorrow's man or woman, waiting for your time to come. You think, how long will it be? And I would, at this moment, say that everybody here, God isn't finished with you yet. Graham, you haven't seen what God has in store for you. You've been earmarked for something you haven't seen. It's coming down the road for you. Ernie, you wonder why you're still here. God isn't finished with you yet. You and Margaret, I pray for you every day. I don't pray for everybody in this room every day. I pray for you too, every day. Ernie Patton prayed for me an hour a day for most of 25 years. Then on my last week, I called him in the vestry. I said, you're released. Now pray for Greg an hour a day. And, uh, and there's a work for everybody here to do. Well, but waiting for tomorrow's time to come. You see, David's anointing was a secret anointing. Only ten people knew. You can count them. His brothers, Jesse, Samuel. Who would have thought? You look at David, what's unusual about him? He had certain gifts and talents, but who would have thought that these would equip him for the kingship? He was a musician. Uh, but as we saw, the first major test, the proof of his secret anointing is he killed Goliath. And, and he saw Goliath as an uncircumcised Philistine before the living God. Everybody else saw him as a big giant. David, he said, he's an uncircumcised Philistine. And David had a natural gift with a sling, and he had practiced it. And uh, I can remember back in the hills of Kentucky where there are certain people that had a sling and they could take a rock and hit the eyelash of a bumblebee 50 yards away. <laughs> They're that good at it. And, and David already knew he could do it. And he, he had to pers persuade uh, 
King Saul. You see, if you're tomorrow's man, the pain of being misunderstood, when you have the anointing without the crown, jealousy from his brothers. And so uh, David is told by Jesse, go check on, on your brothers. And so he goes and, and immediately the brothers turn on David and Eliab, who's firstborn. He leads the list and, and they say, uh, we know who you are, you conceited thing. And David knew that they were just jealous of him because he was the one. Uh, tomorrow's man, underestimated by the leadership. So here goes David, uh, uh, volunteers to King Saul and says, let me have a go. And uh, they, they look at David and they laugh at him. You're just a kid. And uh, well, David says, listen, uh, when I kept the, my father's sheep, a lion and a bear came and carried off the sheep and I went and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed him. Your servant has killed the lion and the bear and that uncircumcised Philistine will fall like one of them. And that's the anointing, but it's also a natural gift because in Saul's armor, there was a little space, just about an inch. And David said, I can hit that. And so the time came, he had five stones, four just to be safe, but one was enough. And he let that thing go. Down came King Saul. And he used David's gift. And who would have thought the ability with a sling would make him king? And whatever gift you have, it may seem inconsequential. Take Joseph. He had dreams and had prophetic dreams and could interpret dreams. And imagine Joseph coming into St. Albans Monday morning. He needs a job. And they say, okay, Joseph, what do you, what do, you do? What are you good at? What kind of job do you want? What, what do you do? He says, dreams. Right. Oh, and I interpret dreams. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll keep you in mind. We'll let you know if anybody comes up wanting to have a dream interpreted. And you may feel that your gift is about as significant as that. But there came a day when the Pharaoh had a dream nobody could interpret, and they found Joseph. And so with what you've been prepared for, you may have underestimated it, but God will use it. Jesus said, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And it's only a matter of time. God will use you. And in the case of David, underestimated by his own father. And you know, we all want parental approval. And we grow up needing the approval of our parents. And I never will forget, as long as I live, how uh, I wanted my dad's approval. I'd come back from Treveca, uh, where I went to college. Now Treveca University. They've become very sophisticated since I was there. And uh, um, I had a new theology. I had a new perspective. And I knew my future 
was going to be altogether different. A year before, my grandmother had bought me a brand new car because I was, while a student at Trevecca, I was also pastor of a little church. I was 19 years old, uh, 100 miles away in Palmer, Tennessee. But one Sunday, Monday morning, driving back to Trevecca, the glory of the Lord filled the car. The person of Jesus was more real to me than any of you are right now. My theology changed in 24 hours. I saw sovereign grace, thought I saw something new. I knew I was eternally saved, went right against all that I had been taught. I knew I could never be lost. I knew the Lord was real. A year later, my grandmother takes the car back because I'm not going to be a Nazarene anymore. My dad says, you've broken with God. I said, I haven't broken with God. I'm closer to God than ever. Well, what is your life to show for it? Because at that time, I wasn't in the ministry. I'd given up my church. I said, well, I know he's going to use me. And I was trying to think of something to impress him. And I, 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 I described a vision that I'd had, because I had some visions in those days. And uh, I knew that one day I would have an international ministry. Pretty bold thing for a Kentucky boy, Nazarene provincial. Uh, and he said, when? Well, I said, this vision will be fulfilled one year from now. He said, will you put that in writing? Sure. He got out a sheet of paper. I.R.T. Kendall will from this date be I signed it. Easiest thing I ever did in my life. I thought it would happen in three months. Because if you've ever had a vision, I don't know if you have, it's so real you think it's going to happen tomorrow. A year later, I wasn't even in the ministry. Five years later, you know what I was doing? Knocking on doors. They come to the door and say, hello, I'm R.T. Kendall. I've come to show you something new and different for your home. All my fellow Trevecca students out pastoring churches. Here I was, a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. And people would go up to my dad and say, how's R.T. doing? Oh, he's uh, working as a door-to-door. Mr. Kendall, how's your son R.T.? He's working as a, as a door-to-door. I didn't hear it. What's R.T. doing? He's working as a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. So hard for my dad. It's so hard for me. That was in 1956. Never forget it as long as I live. In 1978, 22 years later, on a train from Edinburgh into King's Cross, my dad looked at me and said, Son, I'm proud of you. You were right. I was wrong. And I waited 22 years for that. And so, maybe you're waiting for the approval of some authority figure. We all need that. But God has his own timing and way. And he will turn up and bring all those things to pass in his time. Now, Here is Samuel, 
pouring the oil on David. The Spirit of God comes into David from that day on. If only Samuel had said, Oh, by the way, David, I forgot to tell you, it will be another 20 years before you wear the crown. Oh, one other thing, David. Uh, you're going to spend the next 20 years running from King Saul just to stay alive. But don't worry, it's part of your preparation. None of that. David didn't know how long it would be. And so, because you have the anointing, you think, I'm ready to go. I had the anointing in 1956. But I wasn't ready. My anointing needed to be refined. I was far from ready. In fact, if you'd invited me to Westminster Chapel, Bill, the first day after I landed in at Heathrow in September 1973, and I preached at Westminster Chapel the following Sunday, you would never have me back again. I promise you, I wouldn't have known how to do it. It was three years in England, being refined and taking some of the rough edges. They never completely left, did they? But <laughs> you can take a man out of Kentucky, but you can't take the Kentucky out of the man. You know, in England, in America, they want to know why I don't have a British accent. And uh, I just say, I wish I did. I could make an extra $10,000 a year. <laughs> All of them over there, they, they love a British accent. Just never got it. And so David didn't know. There were things he needed to learn. What would David need to learn for his anointing to be refined? Well, I'm looking at the clock because I want to quit in time for us to have a little ministry, but I'll go a few more minutes. One thing, David needed to learn gratitude. Gratitude over the next 20 years. He would learn to be thankful. And he began to write psalms. He would not know that those psalms that he wrote would one day be a part of what we call Holy Scripture. But he would write, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, with praise. Learning to be thankful. About eight years ago, a psychological association in America came up with a conclusion. Thankful people live longer. Thankful people live longer. And people who are negative and finding something wrong all the time, uh, this is not honoring to God. I went through the book of Philippians at Westminster Chapel. We took two years in Philippians. When we came to chapter 4, verse 6, it reads, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. As I preached that morning, those words, with thanksgiving, which were in my notes, but I didn't have a whole lot to say about that particular phrase, I'm ashamed to say. But as I preached, I was so convicted, I wish this happened to me every day. 
I'm always praying that when I preach, I'll see something I've never seen, right as I'm preaching. Now, that day it happened. And it was like my whole life came before me of one thing after another, what God had done for me, and I hadn't bothered to say thank you. And I felt so horrible. I said, Lord, get me through this sermon. And I get in the vestry. I'll close the door, get on my knees, and I will repent. And I did just that. When I got in and, and I, I was at that desk at Westminster Chapel, and I said, Lord, I am so sorry. And he began to show me things. R.T., you remember when you first came to Oxford and you were intimidated, all these Brits around you that had come up through the British system and they came out with the first and now they're doing research. And here you come from the hills of Kentucky and you haven't been brought up in the British system and you start where they end up and you thought you wouldn't make it. You made it, didn't you? Yeah. Are you thankful? Well, well yes. You didn't tell me. Lord, you know I'm thankful, but you didn't tell me. I just felt horrible. And then he said, here, here you are at Westminster Chapel. Not bad from a poor Kentucky boy. Are you thankful? Well, yes. You didn't tell me. Well, you know I'm thankful. And a thousand things came over me over the next week. I made a vow that day. It's a vow I have kept. I have a journal. I keep a journal. I can tell you where I was. April the 6th, 1987, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I go through the whole day. My journal today brought up from yesterday up until the time I went to sleep last night. Aunt, it's just something I do. The next day, I started doing something. I go through my journal for every item the day before and thanking for everything. Thank you for everything. You know how long it takes? About 15 seconds. I just thank him. Lord, thank you for the time uh, with Aunt yesterday. Thank you for Rory from South Africa that came. Thank you for helping me preach last night. Uh, thank you for those who came forward this morning. Thank you for the good night's sleep. I just try to thank you for everything. I would urge you not to go to bed tonight until you thank the Lord at least for three things and you start counting them, there'll be ten. God loves gratitude. He hates ingratitude. When the leper came back that was healed, says, thank you, Lord. Jesus said, where are the nine? He notices when we don't thank him. David, in order to prepare for the kingship, needed to learn to be thankful. Another thing David needed to learn was the meaning of the word mercy. Mercy. What is mercy? Well, grace is when God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is when he doesn't give you what you do deserve. You deserve justice. He gives you mercy. And David began to see how many times he escaped the clutches of King Saul. He almost would lose it, and then he would be safe. And David began to write about the mercy of God. 
Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. His mercies endure forever. And when's the last time you thank God for his mercy? That time when you could have been caught and you weren't caught. That time when you could have lost everything, you didn't. Have you been aware of his mercy? Did you know the first thing we are to ask for when we go to God in prayer? You know the very first thing? Hebrews 4.16 Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Mercy. It's the first thing. This is to Christians. You say, well, mercy, that's what the sinner asked for. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Quite. What made you think you outgrow the need of mercy? It's by the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. When's the last time you asked God for mercy? When's the last time you asked anybody for mercy? You don't use that word. Aunt, I may ask you for a favor, but if I have ever asked you for mercy, you'll know I'm in bad shape. I'll use any other word. I might say, I'll do a favor for you if you do it. You know, we don't want to ask for mercy. I know all ten of my followers expecting this story. Here it comes. Driving in Miami Beach some years ago on Collins Avenue, where all the luxurious hotels are situated one after another. Louise and I, one evening, driving 35 miles per hour in front of the famous Fountain Blue, came to a traffic light. It was green. It turned yellow. Before I knew it, I went right through the red light at 35 miles per hour, not going so fast. But in my mirror was a blue light going on and off, on and off, you know, that awful feeling. I pulled over, got out of the car, went back. There was the policeman. He was just looking like me, like this. I knew that he knew that I knew what I did. Because there's no use to say, why did you stop me? That wasn't going to work. I said, officer, please don't give me a ticket. He said, Why? I said, well, I'd appreciate it, for one thing. He said, give me one reason. One reason I shouldn't give you a ticket. He said, you went right through that red light. You went right through that red light. You know you did. Why shouldn't I give you a ticket? Well, I think where we live, the lights stay yellow just a little longer. And it, 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 it got red so fast and that that didn't play well. He said, give me one reason I shouldn't give you a ticket. No reason. I'm just asking for mercy. He let me go. Never will forget how I felt. And that's the way it is. We come to a God who said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Don't rush into the presence of God, snap your finger and expect him to salute you as if you're doing him some kind of favor. It's by the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. And you ask you for mercy. And David began to realize how it was by the mercy of God that he was still alive. 
A third thing David needed to learn was to develop a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And this perhaps is one of the most important lessons for David. There was a time when David had a chance to kill Saul because David was back, Saul was in En Gedi. I've been to that very place in En Gedi. And, and, and Saul was in this cave and, and David's followers knew it and says, David, we can get rid of Saul right now. I can take the sword and kill him and you'll be king. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't do that. But let's have a little bit of fun, says David. David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What's bad about that? Wouldn't bother most people. But it says David, right after that, was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he felt horrible. He felt terrible. He says, God forbid that I should do such a thing to the Lord's anointed. You see, he's calling Saul anointed. What's going on here? David was learning. You know what grieved the Holy Spirit? If you ask me for the greatest insight that I had in 25 years in London, this is it. To see what grieves the Holy Spirit and how easy it is to grieve the Holy Spirit. I was in Florence, Alabama, and a young pastor said one morning, as I was going into the pulpit, just before we went in, he said, what's a veteran like you got to say to a young whippersnapper like me? I said, find out what grieves the Holy Spirit and don't do that. You got your work cut out for you. Paul said, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30. Now there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is, when you grieve the Holy Spirit, you don't lose your salvation. Paul says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Nothing can be clearer than that. You don't lose your salvation. But what does happen when the Holy Spirit is greeted, it's like the anointing lifts for a moment. You don't ever lose the Holy Spirit, but the sense of God, the manifestation of his presence, the awareness that he's there lifts, and you're irritable. You snap it quickly. You read your Bible, you can't get anywhere. The way John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah, he says in John chapter 1, verses 32, 33, he said, I knew that this was the Son of God, because the one who sent me said, when you see the Spirit come down as a dove and remain, that's the one. He says, I wouldn't have known him. But the one who sent me said, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain. Remain. 
is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. You've known about the dove. Had you noticed the word remain? What does it mean? Well, when the dove came down on Jesus, he just stayed, never left. He comes down on me, and when it happens, it's wonderful. I can think of that time driving in my car, the sense of God. Oh, wonderful. I wish I could say I had it forever. Some months later, I'll never forget where I was, when it happened. And I thought, I've just, I lost my temper, I'll tell you. I lost my temper. And in that moment, the dove just kind of flew away. And over the years, I've tried every way under the sun to get that back. Didn't happen for years until I began to come into the teaching of total forgiveness and, and not grieving the Spirit and what I'm preaching now. And he came back. You see, when that dove comes down, there's this sense of God. But when you think, I wish I could just keep this all day long. And you think at the end of the day, what happened? The Lord was so real to me a few hours ago. Was it when you lost your temper on the motorway, the car in front of you going so slow, you honk your horn, what's the matter with you? Or it can happen when you're in a supermarket and the you're in a hurry to get out. The person in front of you paying the groceries, they're counting their change, and they're so slow, and you go, ah. You wanted them to hear you. They did. But so did the dove. He just kind of flies away. It's so easy. Bitterness, anger. A British couple were sent by their denomination to be missionaries in Israel. They were given a home in which they lived near Jerusalem. But they noticed a few days, maybe a few weeks after they moved in, a dove had come to live in the eve of the roof of their house, and they were so excited. It was like a seal of God on their being in Israel. But they noticed that every time they would slam a door, the dove would fly away. Every time they would uh, get into an argument with each other and start shouting, the dove would fly away. And one day, Sandy said to Bernice, have you noticed the dove? Yes. How do you feel about the dove? Oh, it's like a seal of God on our being in Israel. But have you noticed every time we slam a door, the dove flies away. Every time we start shouting at each other, the dove flies away. She said, yes, and I'm so afraid that he's going to fly away and not come back. He simply looked at her and said, either the dove adjusts to us or we adjust to the dove. It changed their lives. Watched their every move. They just didn't want that little bird to fly away. The Holy Spirit is a thousand times more sensitive than that. And David, when he knew he'd grieved the Spirit, said, God, give me another chance. He got it. Chapter 26, 1 Samuel. Again, David's followers, they mean well. They said, David, we can get him now. One chance with my spirit, and he's over. And you're king. No, 
We're, this time we're not even going to cut off a piece of his robe. We'll just wait for the day, let him die, let God take him. Not going to lift a finger. And in those days, God looked down from heaven and said, I think David's just about ready to be king now. Waited on God's timing. And he was the greatest king that ever was. Victor Hugo said, like the trampling of a mighty army, so is the force of an idea whose time has come. And if I could paraphrase that, like the trampling of a mighty army, so is the force of one's anointing whose time has come. And David had learned the meaning of mercy, gratitude, and how not to grieve the Holy Spirit. When I was at Westminster Chapel, I started my Sunday morning preparation on Monday morning. Westminster Chapel is a preacher's dream and a pastor's nightmare. Uh, but uh, I, all I did is prepare sermons. I started on Monday morning. But there was one week, it only happened once in 25 years. I came to Saturday and I had not cracked a book. I had barely kept up my Bible reading. I had been preaching all over Britain. I didn't have a chance to do anything about a Sunday morning sermon. Not a thing. And it was now Saturday morning. I said, Lord, you know what kind of week it's been? Please get me through the day. Make up for this lost week. You know I couldn't help it. At nine o'clock that morning, Louise and I had an argument. In Kentucky, we would say it was a dandy. She was horrible. <laughs> I slammed the door, went into my room. There, my Bible, blank sheet of paper. Now, Lord, give me a message for tomorrow. Give me something, Lord. Deal with that woman. <laughs> 11 o'clock, nothing. Blank sheet of paper. Lord, please help me. Please show me what preach on. 1 o'clock, blank sheet of paper. 2 o'clock, I was in a state. Lord, you know that what I say tomorrow will be tape recorded and go around the world. You've got to help me. A voice faintly replied, Really? Three o'clock, nothing. Four o'clock. You see, I was waiting for her. I went into the kitchen. I can see her now, standing by the refrigerator. She was tearful. I said, honey, I'm sorry. It was all my fault. Well, it wasn't all your fault. It was partly my fault. She said, no, 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 no. It's all my fault. And I am so sorry. We kissed. We hugged. I went back to the same chair, same Bible, same blank sheet of paper. And I promise you, in 45 minutes, I had everything I needed for Sunday. Why? The dove came down. 
You can accomplish more in five minutes when the Holy Spirit comes down than you can in five years when you're trying to work it up and make it happen. That's the anointing. Don't rest in the charismata, your natural gift or any gift of the Spirit. It proves nothing. But the presence of the mind of the Spirit when God speaks to you, everything, everything. Shall we stand?